0: Welcome to Conscious Parents Thriving Kids, a place for all things parenting. I am your host, Sue Caro. I am thrilled to introduce my special guest for today's episode, Una Hansen. Una is a parent coach who has been in education for over 20 years. She loves supporting parents of teens and tweens as they navigate the challenges of adolescence. Passionate about helping parents raise kids who have a healthy relationship with food and their body. MUNA writes and gives talks on fostering body image resilience and lowering the risk for eating disorders. Launched during the pandemic summer of 2020, her Common Sense Camp offers a framework for teaching kids essential life skills at home. Muna holds a master's degree in educational psychology and in English. Her work has been featured widely, including CNN Today, Good Morning America, Good Day LA, and many more. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband and two children. Welcome, Una. It's a pleasure to have you join me today. Happy to be here. So let's dive in. I, I love that you're so passionate about helping families really understand the relationship that we have to food. Tell me a little bit about where that starts in terms of how we foster good relationships from the get-go.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think. I think what's hard, I'll start with what's hard for parents. Um, I think it's hard in our current food culture, um, which is a diet culture, where we get messages about what healthy eating is supposed to look like. Um, and it's a very narrow kind of black and white thinking kind of approach to food, um, looking at food only as sort of a macro or micronutrient delivery system or something that you could reduce to you know, numbers on a label. And so, I think it's really important for parents to kind of come back to the basics and remember that food is so much more than just you know those numbers. Food is love. It's connection. It's belonging. Um, it's your culture. Um, and we nourish our families in so many ways around the dinner table. And so, I think it's helpful for parents to kind of tap into those. I think that inner wisdom about you know what family meals can be. And try to tune out some of the messages from our culture, you know, sort of eat this, not that, or um, trying to micromanage how our kids eat. So I really try to help parents kind of uh, push back a little bit on some of the misleading and potentially harmful messages out there about what food should be in our
0: families. Well, I I think that you, you touched on a number of things. The should be, you know, what it should look like and the nurturing around the dinner table. And, you know, it's, it's interesting how powerful words are in, in so many ways. But certainly when it comes to food, I can still remember my mom telling me, don't eat that muffin because it had a thousand calories. I mean, it must have been eight. And, you know, at eight, who's even thinking about calories? I didn't know the difference between, you know, one calorie and another. So how is it that we can shift, you know, in, in your opinion, the conditioning that has already taken place. Um, You know, sadly, I don't have a great relationship with muffins, but it's more intentional now than it is from those words. But when you think about a story like that, many parents have been raised in this type of environment with heavy conditioning about food and food is love and finish everything on your plate. They're starving children, right? All of these things. What, What are some tips that you can offer our listeners today about their own conditioning and how to look at it?
1: Right. I mean, we all come to parenthood with our own history, right? Our own relationship with food and our body and, and movement. Um, so it, it is important for parents who really struggle with body image issues or a history of disordered eating or chronic dieting. It's really important for parents to take care of themselves. Um, there's, um, there are incredible resources out there for, for anyone who wants to kind of work on some of those issues. Um, I think. You know, one of the most important things is to remember just sort of basic psychology, right? When we're raising kids, when we try to force kids to eat something, they're actually going to be less likely to want to eat that, not only in that moment, but farther down the road. Um, the same thing goes with trying to hold food back from a kid, right? If, if you're worried that your kid is overeating and you try to control their portions or question, like, are you sure you want the second muffin? Um That only makes kids feel that food is a scarce resource and maybe they're not going to be allowed to eat enough when they're hungry. And so it actually drives kids to eat more. So there's this interesting thing that happens when parents let kids have a say over their own hunger and fullness. um, And everybody wins, right? Dinner time becomes much less stressful. No, No more negotiating, bribing, cajoling, threatening. If we can really you know, present a you know variety of options of food that we enjoy and our kids get to decide how much to eat and what to eat. Um, and it really restores that family meal back to what it should be, which is this time of connection. And yes, you're getting nourished, you know, in terms of, you know, nutrition and calories and energy, but you're also being nourished in all those other ways. You can have much more interesting conversations when everyone isn't feeling anxious about who's eating what or not eating enough or eating too much of something. It really brings a lot of peace to the family and it sets your kids up to kind of break that cycle of, of struggling with food and body and diet. Um, so it's, it's not easy you, know, you don't just, you know, flip the switch and turn off decades of programming that like we should be eating a certain way. Um, so it does take time. I think parents should be gentle with themselves. I mean, it makes sense if you, you know, if you've been doing keto or intermittent fasting or any of these sort of trendy diets, um, I don't want parents to feel guilty about that, I mean, it makes sense that you would think that was the right thing to do. And so just being, you know, showing yourself compassion. And and then with older kids, you can say to them, look, you know, I realize I've been kind of eating according to what some book told me or an app told me to, you know, I, I want to get back to basics and listen to my body because listening to our intuition is so powerful. And, you know, it even has implications beyond the dinner table. I think about, you know, there's been a lot of talk about consent, uh, with kids and families. And think about it, if you have a young child sitting there and you're, you know, forcing them to eat something, you have to clean their, you have to clean your plate. Um, you know, the message is, I shouldn't listen to my body. Instead, I have to bend to the will of someone who's pressuring me who has more power than me. Uh, maybe my body can't be trusted. Maybe I should always just listen to what someone tells me to do. And that my inner you know, wisdom doesn't matter. So when you extrapolate out from the dinner table into their young adulthood or their teenage years, I mean, you can see how um, powerful these conversations at dinner can be. So I think it's really important for parents to just take a deep breath and, you know, try to get back to some basics, some common sense. And, you know, there's a lot of help out there if you need help kind of unlearning the, the, the diet culture way of doing things.
0: Wow, I, I love all that you just shared. And I think that, that it's such an important uh, point, not that they're all not important, but that you talked about in terms of listening to your body. Uh, I've done podcasts before where we talk about, you know, enforcing kids to go give grandma a hug or grandpa a hug. Or, and it's, I've never heard it in relationship to, you know, the, the fact that we need to listen to our body when we're hungry or we're not hungry and just stop. Um, in our society, that's not something that, in my opinion, is, is so common that we're taught. So, you know, I really think that's in a, a very, very important and powerful way to help our children and to help ourselves to model that as parents listening to our own bodies when we've had enough. And I, I, one of the things I wanted to um, bring up is how we verbalize these things. So, you know, keto diet, like you said, you know, again, no judgment here, whatever we're doing, you know, I, I don't eat grains or dairy or gluten because I have allergies, but I don't talk about that all day long. I can't have this, I can't have that. So when we're talking in front of our children, how can we put language to the positivity and intentionality of what we want to put forward in terms of nutrition, health, and not bodies and fat and, you know, the calorie count in a muffin. What kind of language do you suggest is helpful for parents to, to focus on?
1: Right. I don't think we have to teach young kids anything about nutrition in the way that we think about nutrition, right? We think about nutrition as, again, micronutrients, macronutrients, you know, um, we really can get into the weeds with young kids and it's, it's really counterproductive and a lot of, you know, very well-meaning teachers and health curriculum designers, you know, will try to send the message to young kids that they should only have X amount of sugar. And, um, you know, you have to have, you know, a balanced plate that looks a certain way at every, at every meal. Um, and, you know, young kids are very concrete thinkers and they can take uh, you know, a message that might have a kernel of, you know, good sense to it, but then they can kind of take a black and white approach that can lead to fear or fixation, um, restriction, binging. Uh, So with kids, it's really important to steer clear, I think, even of words like healthy and unhealthy. Um, You know, we we tend to label foods in our culture, but the thing is there's really no such thing as a healthy or unhealthy food. That might sound sound shocking to some of your listeners, Um, but there's healthy and unhealthy food behaviors so I'll give you an example, you know, a green apple and a cheeseburger, right? And it could be a, a veggie burger with a gluten-free bun if it's for, you know, for you. So, and you know, vegan cheese. So, um, you know, people would say, oh, well, the apple is healthier. So I say to parents, well, what if your child only ate green apples, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and every snack? Um, they would feel terrible physically, right? They would become malnourished. Um, and that would be very, a, a very unhealthy behavior. If the burger or pick whatever kind of food is sort of demonized in our culture, you know, at the moment, and it changes all the time. It was fat when I was growing up, now it's sugar. Um, So you pick whatever food, you know, you think of as sort of unhealthy. Well, then you imagine, you know, the family gathering, well, when we can have gatherings again, where that's the food that's offered and your child is so afraid of that food that they can't participate in this gathering. And I'm not talking about allergies, right? That's a separate issue. But if they're so afraid of it that they don't, they don't eat, they can't participate in this gathering, they're missing out on so much more than just the nutrition. So again, foods themselves, you know, they always have a context. So I think it's important for parents to steer clear of labeling food that's healthy or unhealthy. Instead, the language you want to use, things like variety. So, you know, you might say, wow, we've had pizza three nights this week. Um, I'm kind of in the mood to mix it up. Let's have a little variety. What, what, What do you guys want to add in this week? Um, also really focusing on satisfaction. There's a lot of diet culture messages that will say things like, before you go to a party, you know, eat a lot of crudité to fill up <laughs> wow. uh, before you go. And, you know, eating a lot of raw vegetables, it's, it's often not very satisfying, right? That's, that's just probably not going to feel very good physically. And you, you might be full physically, but you're not satisfied, right? You need to have a variety of things. Um, and then also pleasure. I think our culture has demonized comfort food and enjoying food. And that's, you know, it's a shame. And I think, you know, during the pandemic there was a brief moment where everyone was sort of baking bread and serving all these nostalgic favorites for their families. And then there was sort of that panic mode that people went into like, oh no, we, my kids are only gonna eat mac and cheese and muffins for the rest of their life. And I think there was sort of a, um, just a that kind of sense of fear But really, if, you know, we can allow kids to find comfort and joy in food, that's a great thing. I mean, we don't want that to be their only comfort, you know, their only coping strategy. We want kids to have a grab bag of tricks to use when they're stressed or bored or tired or lonely. Um, But there's nothing inherently wrong with taking comfort in food. Human beings are hardwired to seek comfort in food. Um, And again, we think about, you know, celebration. I know we're celebrating in isolation now, but if it's somebody's birthday, you know, and there's a cupcake, you know, most of what you don't eat cupcakes usually because you're hungry, like physical stomach hunger. You're eating a cupcake because it's joyful, it's celebratory, and it tastes delicious. So I think, you know, variety, satisfaction, and pleasure, um, that will help parents, I think, cover all the bases. And you're going to have, you know, variety has, um, you know, the food groups built in, and so does satisfaction, right? When you have just sort of one kind of thing, you're, you're not usually very satisfied. So satisfaction, variety, and pleasure.
0: I really think you can't go wrong with those. That's beautiful. I'm going to continue to eat my comfort food. (laughs) Good, good. Um, And, you know, I think think you're right. We have demonized the whole comfort food. But if it does bring us comfort, and not that you're sitting there eating, you know, boxes and boxes of Oreo cookies or whatever it might be, but some amount of comfort, what's wrong with that? I, I love that you shared that. I wanted to touch on... How you would define, you know, here we are talking about healthy eating and um you know, healthy eating in terms of having a good relationship with food, not the healthy eating. And talking about eating disorders or disorderly eating, and I wondered if you might take a step back and offer us a definition of what that really is, both disorderly eating and an eating disorder. I think parents need to understand what that is it's not really your child had 14 cookies tonight, so they must have an eating disorder. Can you share on your right. words? That, yeah, those are a lot of big topics. Let me see. Um, I think first
1: off, I think people, when they hear the words eating disorder, they have a very specific image in their mind that has been perpetuated by the media over the years. Right. Now, mm-hmm. I think you're probably picturing, let me guess, a very thin, white, affluent girl who's getting straight A's. She's probably a teenager, um and certainly eating disorders do affect that population, but that's not the typical person with an eating disorder, actually. So even though they're sort of the poster child for eating disorders, um, anyone can be affected by an eating disorder. It doesn't matter your you know your gender, your race, your socioeconomic background. Um and I will say actually people of color are at higher risk for eating disorders. Um so it, they're a very underdiagnosed and undertreated population. Same goes for males. I think um, You know, men and boys are, you know, developing eating disorders at higher and higher rates because of the sort of fitness and wellness marketing to to boys and men, Um, and also people in larger bodies. I think people assume that if you're in a larger body, you can't have an eating disorder. So I really want to separate out, you know, if you see a thin person, it doesn't mean they have anorexia. If you see a heavier person, it doesn't mean they have binge eating disorder. Um, Anybody in any body size or shape can have any of the eating disorders. So you know disordered eating is anything where your relationship with food is anything other than sort of like listening to your hunger and fullness and your pleasure and sort of just sort of like a social the norm. what i would consider like sort of the normal healthy way of eating so any kind of dieting is inherently disordered eating because you're you're choosing foods you know in a way to try to control your you know your shape or your weight um, of course we know it doesn't actually work for most people you know 95 plus percent of people who intentionally you know, diet to lose weight will gain it back and two-thirds of those will gain more than they lost. So dieting is actually a predictor of weight gain, not weight loss. Um, there's nothing inherently wrong with weight gain. It's part of life, right? It's especially like puberty is like a really rapid weight gain. Um, so our kids need to be you know, taught about that. And then as, you know, as we age, it is normal to gain weight as we age. Um, and it actually can offer a lot of protective health factors, but we've been told to be terrified of waking. Um, So disordered eating is anything where you're, you know, kind of that low level dieting, or you have like these rules for yourself that aren't coming from your own internal wisdom. Um, So it's funny, because that's sort of the way most people eat. I think we've, we've lost our intuitive relationship with food in a lot of ways. Um, But disordered eating just means that it's not it's not meeting the criteria in the DSM five for a clinical eating disorder, um, and then you know eating disorders as you know there's very specific you know criteria for for those. Um, and I don't know if I I didn't get all your questions. I'm trying to remember what you had. No, part. no,
0: that's you. You definitely <laughs> you definitely did answer the questions. You know, and I I think that um, it can be very confusing for for many people, and the you know the rules and restrictions as you beautifully pointed out, you know, having such stringency and strictness and, you know, rules for yourself, you can't touch this and you can't touch that. And you can only eat this between, you know, 12 and two and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, is not necessarily listening to your body. It is letting your mind and mental state take over the decisions to serve your body. Correct?
1: Right, and you know that kind of rigidity, you know the, I'm glad you brought up the clock thing because there's a lot of like don't eat after a certain time at night or um, you know these external rules, and when people get really rigid about them, you know we we t- like we were just talking about comfort food, we worry a lot about like comfort eating and eating for stress. Well, being rigid about food can be it's also a cope, like an unhealthy coping strategy, right? if you are sort of living by the clock or what like the app tells you to do um you know, people will wear their Fitbit and they'll say, oh, I can have that extra slice of whatever, because I burned this many, you know, like we're not machines. Um, and I think when we, when we outsource our intuition to a diet book or an app or a smart watch, um, you know, we really lose a lot. Um, so I think it's, it's worth looking at, And you know, a particular um, sort of subclinical eating disorder that I want to mention is orthorexia, which um, is the unhealthy obsession with healthy eating. So it's not technically classified as an eating disorder yet. It's probably coming. I mean, it's very similar to anorexia. Um, the biggest difference is that in orthorexia, the person may not be dieting to try to change their body size or shape, but they've you know they've heard about clean eating and wellness and eating for health and that food is medicine and can become very rigid, right? It's like they you know they can only eat certain kinds of foods and it the, the number of foods gets smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where it really hurts their, their well-being and their health, even though they started out trying to eat so-called healthy. Um, so that's a really important one. I think a lot of parents haven't heard of it. Uh, and so I think it's important to be aware that your child's sort of new health kick, you want to keep an eye on it, right? If they suddenly come home and say, you know, I want to go vegan or I want to go gluten-free and they don't have celiac disease. Um, they've heard certain foods are you know, not healthy and they want to they be healthy, right? This is a good thing. But the problem is that our culture has kind of left us with some misleading and and confusing messages. So it's something that parents should definitely keep an eye on. We don't want to always celebrate like, oh, you're being so healthy, right? We really want to know what's going on underneath and kind of what they're thinking about their food and their body and not just saying like, oh, they're choosing this, you know,
0: kale salad isn't this great. So, yeah. Right. And taking pictures and posting it and sharing with all your (laughs) friends. Yeah. I've never heard that term, but... um, boy, it fits some people I know. Um, And, you know, I also have seen in my own, you know, uh, journey, people who are uh, exercise crazed, I'll call it, um, for lack of a better word coming to me, but, you know, the restrictions and the expectations on the exercise regimen, you know, six miles a day, every day, or whatever the case may be, where they are just pounding the pavement Because, again, you know, it's a disordered arena in how we, you know, relate to food, our bodies, and everything else, correct?
1: Right. I mean, I think there can be someone who runs six miles a day, and that's their daily self-care, and they feel great. And that could be very healthy, right? For someone else, if, you know, let's say, um, you know, they're injured and they still feel they have to run their six miles they're sick and they think they have to run the six miles or something disrupts their day and they can't run the six miles and it's taking up a lot of brain space in terms of anxiety and obsession that's when i would worry right so Mm -hmm. there's nothing inherently wrong of being a you know with being a runner and wanting to run every day as long as there's still that time for rest and flexibility right um but yeah i think for a lot of people exercise i mean there's exercise is a really good thing for us right if we can Um, especially if we can think of it in terms of how we feel, that we're not, we're not pursuing exercise in the diet culture way of like burning a certain amount, or we're trying to shape our body a certain way. But if we're really doing it because we feel good, um, I think that can be very health promoting. And so I don't think we want to like be afraid of exercise. It's, It's really, again, it's sort of like food, right? It's not healthy or unhealthy. It's the relationship to the um, to the movement, right? If it's obsessive, that's when people, sh- you know, might need some help.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I, you know, obsessiveness is, is something that comes from the mind, again, not listening to the body. So if you're obsessively, obsessively running every single day, with, you know, a sore foot or calluses or bunions or pain in some area, but you have to, you know, because you fall into that obsessive need of doing this, then we're not listening to our body. Again, it takes us away from the mind-body connection where, you know, we, we plan and think, how can I serve myself in the best way?
1: Right, and that, you know that can, for some people, the tuning out their feelings is sort of becomes a side benefit, right, of restrictive eating or over-exercising where it has sort of a numbing effect on us. And so it can be very scary for someone to start to break that cycle because as we rest and as we re-nourish ourselves, a lot of feelings can come out that you maybe haven't felt in a while. So I don't want to make it sound like this is something it's easy that you just one day say, you know what, I'm going to take it easy and I'm only going to run when I feel like it. Um, It's usually not that easy for someone who's really caught in something obsessive. And that's Why I think it's so important for parents to know about these things because the longer someone has a disordered relationship with food or movement, the harder it is to recover, the harder it is to treat. So I believe in that, you know, I believe in full recovery from eating disorders. It's possible. It's really hard to get there if you've been entrenched in it for, you know, decades. So when when teenagers or even preteens start sending these little warning signs to you about their eating or their movement or their body image, it's really important that we start paying attention and we listen
0: and we get the support that our kids need. Yeah, I love that. I love the word curious. And when our kids are really young and you see something, be curious, ask questions in a curious way that help your child to explain, not us as adults trying to put you know, labels and determinations on what that child is actually doing. So this is, um, this is super helpful. You know, I'm sure for all our listeners, it's, it's such an important topic for us to really think about and hone in on and connect with our children in relationship to food, nutrition, body movement, et cetera, to make sure that we're having a intentional um, discussion about it and a good solid foundation for our children as they move through uh, their journey. So I wanted to, before we um, wrap up, I wanted to give you an opportunity to share your Common Sense Camp that you developed this past summer and just um, what that was, you know, briefly, if you don't mind sharing, because I think it was just brilliant.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. Common Sense Camp started out as a joke uh, between me and my husband about 10 years ago. You know, whenever our very book smart children would struggle with something that seemed like an obvious, you know like life skill that they should have picked up just from observing. And so we would turn to each other and say, Oh my gosh, our kids need common sense camp. Well, when the pandemic hit and we started getting the notifications that all their summer camps and activities would be canceled, we just had this light bulb moment. Oh my gosh, let's make common sense camp, you know, a reality. And I, you know, I love a theme. So I ordered t-shirts, my teenager designed the t-shirts. We, you know, we got, camp supplies like typical things you know s'mores and lanyard string and embroidery thread but then we also laid out a week-by-week curriculum um, to teach our kids life skills you know all the things that we think we're going to get to right um like oh yeah before they go off to college i'm sure they'll figure out how to do x y and z well i realized there are a lot of things that we just haven't gotten around to because in the you know the normal hustle and bustle of raising kids it's really hard to slow down and say, "Let me teach you how to use a hammer and a nail," or "Let me teach you, you know, how to read a bank statement." So we were really intentional about setting a theme for each week, and we kept it fun. You know, we also included movies and podcasts. It wasn't all parent parent driven, um, but we did decide what the themes were, and then I'm working on developing sort of a supplement for the school year, because I know a lot of families are realizing they'd love to continue this kind of intentional teaching of life skills going into the year, especially as kids often don't have their sports or theater, kind of all those extracurricular things where kids feel useful and like they're contributing. um, They're not going to have those, at least not in the same way. So this is a way to sort of get those hands-on skills, get them off the zoom and, you know, Give them these life skills that they're going to have forever. You know, I think we worry about like, oh, they're going to they're going to forget some math. They're going to have this learning loss.
0: Um, well, I think we can give them some some really practical skills that we know they're going to use their whole lives. Which which is just brilliant. Again, I'm so glad that 10 years ago you you joked about it, and yet you know during the pandemic something beautiful came out of your jokes um, that that became you know life altering. Opportunities for children, and not just your children, but other children as well. I think it's a great thing to continue uh, moving on with. I mean, many kids go to college. I have college professors that tell me the kids don't know how to do their own laundry, or you know, think they have to get a note if they don't come to school. Like they don't know <laughs> how to be responsible, you know, or or have a feeling of autonomy because they've never been given the space. Which you know is not right or wrong, but let's help our children navigate and have these additional skills as they continue to grow up into young adults. We're raising adults, right? We're raising adults. So they're going to need these skills at some point in time. We're not going over to do their laundry. (laughs) Right. Um, So thank you for sharing that. And before we wrap up, is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners that you feel we might have missed?
1: You know, I think just for parents listening to this during the pandemic and as the school year gets underway, I really think self-compassion and self-care is like number one. You know, I don't want to pile on to-do lists or shoulds for parents, um, but if we can make sure we, you know, the old, you know, the old line about putting your oxygen mask on first, you know, I think parents really have to be intentional about their own self-care and self-compassion. And that's going to help us be that steady rock, you know, during this really uncertain time. So I just send a lot of, you know, just compassion and support to all the parents out there. Because this is, you know, we've never done this before. This is a really big challenge. And it's not always going to be pretty, but we're going to get through it.
0: Thank you. And I think that is such wise advice. I always tell parents, be gentle with ourselves. We don't learn self-compassion. We learn compassion toward others, but self-compassion is one of the most important things we can do for sure. And we're modeling that for our children too. Beautiful. Exactly. Where can people find out more about you, Una?
1: Yeah. So they can find me at my website, which is unahanson.com. And I finally started Posting on Instagram. I was very, I was a late adopter for Instagram, but they can find me at una underscore Hansen.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us and bringing these wonderful topics um, to life with your knowledge and your wisdom to help our listeners move forward. My pleasure. And listeners, thank you for joining us. Remember, every moment is a new moment for Conscious Connections. Thanks for listening to Conscious Parents, Thriving Kids. If you like what you heard, the best compliment you can give us is to share this podcast with a friend and be sure to give us some stars and a favorable review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in.